there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. On August 5th, 1969, Weather satellites over the Atlantic picked up images of a thunderstorm front that was rapidly developing into something larger. The front continued over the Atlantic toward the Caribbean. American scientists monitoring the storm from the Environmental Science Services Administration in Rockville, Maryland, began to worry. They ordered a reconnaissance flight with the mission of taking readings of the storm to determine its severity. As the plane flew wide over the Atlantic on August 14, 1969, it collected data that shocked the scientists back in Maryland. The storm's central air pressure was at 998 millibars and dropping. The wind speeds were at 55 miles per hour. For the storm to have developed so quickly was unheard of. By August 15, 1969, wind speeds had reached 74 miles per hour, arriving at the threshold that allowed meteorologists to classify this storm as a hurricane. It landed in Cuba later that day, its winds reaching over 100 miles per hour. Five people were killed. Back in Maryland, saddened by the loss of life to the south, the scientists hoped that that would be the worst of it. But then, on August 16th, the storm kept going. She was moving towards the Mississippi coast. By the 17th, her wind speeds exceeded 200 miles per hour, and her inner pressure dropped to 901 millibars, the measurements of a Category 5 hurricane. Her name was Camille, and she was about to become one of the deadliest hurricanes in United States history. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. This is our first episode on Hurricane Camille, the Category 5 hurricane that devastated parts of Mississippi, Virginia, and several surrounding states in August 1969. Today, we'll follow citizens in both states as they attempt to survive the unsurvivable. Next week, we'll track the recovery of the communities affected and see if they learned any survival lessons from their ordeal. 
This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the Summer of 69. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Several of you have asked how to help. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. In 1969, American culture was dominating the globe. Radios across the world blasted American musicians such as The Doors, Creedence Clearwater Revival, and Simon and Garfunkel. John Wayne was wrapping up three decades as history's most profitable movie star by finally winning an Oscar for his role in True Grit in 1970. And if he was too corny for you, Paul Newman and Robert Redford appeared on screen as Butch and Sundance, cowboys for a new, more hip generation. Commercialism reached its shiny, sugary zenith as Pepsi began to compete significantly with Coke. Newfangled ATMs dispensed cash with the push of a button, and McDonald's continued its invasion of the country by opening over a thousand locations. America put a man on the moon on July 20th and brought him back four days later. And so, if you were living on the coast of Mississippi on August 15th, 1969, you felt good about being an American. And you felt good about living in the Riviera of the South. World-class live entertainment, aquatic recreation, and fine seafood abounded. You might have felt so good that your jubilation transformed into a delusion of invulnerability when representatives from the Office of Civil Defense knocked on your door and warned you that in 48 hours your neighborhood would be underwater, you didn't take them seriously. In fact, you shut the door in their face when they asked you which next of kin should be notified in the now inevitable event of your death. Some didn't want to accept it, but one of the strongest hurricanes in recorded history was growing in intensity over the Gulf. Surviving it would prove nearly impossible. There had been a moment when meteorologists felt that the storm would die out over Cuba as its wind speeds dropped below 90 miles an hour. But then it started to head north. Hurricanes are nature's steam-powered devils. They begin as clusters of thunderstorms, then grow in intensity and wrap around a central vortex, These storms travel out over the ocean, where the central vortex sucks up the warm, moist air from above the water and rapidly cools it as it shoots it into the atmosphere. The subsequent release of heat warms the clouds from the storm, leading to further atmospheric instability. As winds reach over 74 miles per hour, the storm officially becomes a hurricane, 
and it spins and spins until eventually it reaches land. A Category 5 hurricane features winds of over 157 miles per hour. In August 1969, the storm traveling north from Cuba had reached this level of intensity. It was called Camille, and it was sucking up all the warm, moist air from the Caribbean, looking to deposit all of it onto the southern American coast. Reports from various government agencies at the time suggested that Camille featured winds of up to 200 miles per hour, though modern estimates place the storm in the 150 to 170 miles per hour range. Wind speeds also vary depending on their location within the hurricane. For the purposes of this podcast, we'll continue to reference the 200 miles per hour estimate. She was a molecular freight train gaining steam. On August 17, 1969, the residents of the Richelieu Apartments spent the entire day bracing for the storm. The complex was located in Pass Christiane, Mississippi, a small coastal town that is little more than a three-mile-wide peninsula jutting into Bay St. Louis. No area was more vulnerable to a hurricane strike. 24-year-old Ben Duckworth was boarding up windows on the side of the apartment when a representative from the sheriff's office came up behind him. The man warned him, boy, this one's going to be a real killer. You better get gone. But Ben didn't heed this warning. Perhaps he felt a sense of duty in staying. His roommate, Buddy Jones, was in the Navy and had been called into service nearby. How could he just leave while others were working to ensure the community's survival? And besides, there were multiple elderly residents staying at the Richelieu who would need his help surviving the storm. By Saturday, August 16, 1969, the National Guard was forcibly evacuating over 200,000 residents from the Gulf towns of Bay St. Louis, Pass Christiane, Gulfport, and Biloxi. 20 miles of boardwalks, boats, and beaches, none of which could withstand 200-mile-per-hour winds, nor the storm surge that would result. A storm surge refers to the wall of water that a hurricane picks up and deposits on the shore as it arrives on land. In a matter of minutes, the sea level is raised by up to 25 feet. Inland homes become oceanfront property. And so, Ben Duckworth's decision to stay in Pass Christiane was a poor survival choice. Further up the Mississippi River, citizens braced themselves by stacking sandbags to function as makeshift levees. This is a worthwhile survival technique. Extra fortification against the onslaught of rushing water is key. Others were performing the tried-and-true tactics associated with hurricane survival. For anyone living along the eastern seaboard of the United States, there are several tasks commonly associated with hurricane preparedness. The first is to board up the windows in your home. Thick plywood is recommended. However, some residents even go so far as to install permanent metal storm shutters. This prevents glass windows from shattering and blocks fast-traveling debris from entering the home. Another preventative hurricane measure is to trim the trees and other significant foliage around the home. 
This ensures that no loose branches are ripped loose by the storm and hurled through a window or a roof or onto a car. Those who thought ahead prepared hurricane kits containing three days' worth of water and food, flashlights, first aid kits, and a radio. Some turned their refrigerators up to the coldest setting and placed food in the icebox in case the power went out. And still others filled their cars with gasoline and packed suitcases in case they needed to make a quick escape. Ben had spent his morning boarding up the first floor windows and after that was asked by local law enforcement to assist in moving cars to a higher elevation. The idea behind this was that the floodwaters wouldn't reach beyond 20 feet above sea level. This would prove to be an incorrect assumption. Ben spent the rest of his day hauling furniture from the first floor of the Richelieu to the second and third floors. It was exhausting work. At one point, he received a call from his father, Hubert, imploring him to get out of past Christiane. Hubert would later tell writer Philip D. Hearn that Ben felt the roadways would be jammed and that he was safer simply hunkering down at the Richelieu. They had taken all of the necessary precautions. But none of this would ultimately lead towards survival. While these are useful precautions to take in a low or medium intensity hurricane, Camille was already threatening to be the most powerful hurricane ever to hit the United States. The 200 mile per hour winds would not only rip plywood off of windows, but they would also completely knock buildings over. Food spoiling in the refrigerator would be the least of a homeowner's worries as the waters from the storm surge filled their homes. This speaks to the especially dangerous nature of hurricanes as they attack on two fronts, by land and by air. In a tornado, civilians can safely hide underground to escape the killer winds. But in a hurricane, anyone in a storm shelter will be drowned by floodwaters. Some might think to try and escape floodwaters by retreating to the upper floor of a building. But then they might be killed by the deadly winds ripping through the windows and even the walls. Or even if the wind isn't strong enough to do this, the whole building might still collapse as the first floor gives way to the flood. Flooding is actually the deadliest weather event in the United States, claiming nearly 100 lives a year on average since 2015, and an average of 86 over the last 30 years. The Galveston hurricane of 1900 led to thousands of flood-related deaths and remains the deadliest natural disaster in United States history. And so, in truth, the only completely safe course of action when living on the coast in a Category 5 hurricane is to evacuate. If the roadways become gridlocked, then it is even safer to abandon your vehicle and walk in the opposite direction of the storm. It is imperative to not be present when the hurricane strikes. Nevertheless, many of the residents of the Mississippi coast, like Ben Duckworth, chose to stay in their homes. For some, the decision was made out of arrogance or stubbornness. For others, there was simply nowhere to go. They had no friends or relatives out of town, and they didn't have enough money to pay for lodging at a hotel. The Office of Civil Defense and the National Guard did offer assistance and guidance in evacuating, 
but not everyone took advantage of that aid, or they may not have been aware it existed. Almost a thousand miles to the northeast, in Nelson County, Virginia, 14-year-old Warren Rains played in the James River, as he did every day. The river was the centerpiece of the community. Many homes and businesses dotted its banks. 1969 had been a dry year for the region, and so the rivers and surrounding hillsides were mostly dirt and mud. It hadn't occurred to anyone what might happen if the valley received sudden extreme rainfall. They had no idea that in 24 hours, Hurricane Camille would wipe their community off the map. Two young men, both just going about business as usual, were about to fight for their lives. Up next, Hurricane Camille makes landfall. And now, back to the story. On Sunday, August 17, 1969, 24-year-old Ben Duckworth of the Richelieu Apartments in Pass Christian, Mississippi, had chosen to ride out the impending Hurricane Camille along with about 14 other residents. Multiple residents chose to stay, giving rise to a persistent myth that they were having a hurricane party, a defiant celebration to ride out the storm. In truth, residents stayed for a variety of reasons. The owner of the building, Merwin Jones, claimed that the building was of steel construction and could withstand the storm. In fact, the apartment was a designated fallout shelter in the event of a nuclear attack. This gave everyone a false sense of confidence. They would find out the hard way that the building had wood, not steel, framing. Ben had also chosen to stay to assist Jack and Zoe Matthews, an elderly couple in the building. He helped them relocate to a vacant apartment on an upper floor, then joined a group in a vacant apartment on the third floor. There was Ben, an engineer named Richard Keller, and his wife, Luann. According to author Philip D. Hearn, they were also joined by engineer Mike Bielan and Navy CB Mike Gannon. On the second floor, Mary Ann Gerlock and her husband Fritz were in their own apartment, enjoying a date night. That's 10 named residents. Though there were an estimated 14 to 23 individuals remaining in the complex, additional names have been lost to time. Night fell on past Christian, obscuring the approaching hurricane from view. As it approached, its winds persisted at 200 miles per hour. The size of the storm had increased, with the central vortex, the eye, reaching 12 miles in diameter. And with it came the storm surge. Massive amounts of ocean water pushed onto the coast. The Jordan River, a river emptying into Bay St. Louis, opposite from Pass Christiane, immediately flooded. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, the floodwaters rose to levels more than three times the average of what would be considered the largest over 50 years. The surge, coupled with the winds, lifted barges, tugboats, and small skiffs, all anchored in the bay, into the air, hurling them into past Christiane. Sailboats flew into living rooms. A barge broke Highway 90 in half. Winds ripped into the oceanside buildings. Down the street from the Richelieu, a 100-year-old two-story church 
housing a family of more than 10, was obliterated in one gust. Later, surviving witnesses would recall the haunting sight of the children's bodies floating through the streets. Ben and his fellow residents gathered around a TV in their third-floor apartment, watching as meteorologist Al Duckworth tracked the storm. Al referred to a paper map with no real-time capabilities whatsoever. He read from paper printouts. With his tan suit and the colorful poster boards around him, the news felt more like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood than the kind of dramatic, scientific weather forecasting Americans experience in the modern era. Though the meteorology of the day was certainly better than nothing, it is unlikely that the full power of the storm was relayed as thoroughly as it would have been today. Not to mention, TV ownership was not as common in 1969 as it is in 2019. In all likelihood, lives were lost because those who lived in poorer, more remote regions didn't have access to the news. Ben jumped. Someone let out a scream. It sounded like a bunch of birds were ramming into the window. But upon closer examination, he realized it was the sheer power of the wind and rain now bearing down on them. It was 11.14 p.m. He tried to comfort the elderly Mrs. Matthews, who had joined them on the third floor. But even he didn't believe what he was saying. Little did they know, just a floor below them, residents were already fighting for their lives. On the second floor, Marianne and Fritz Gerlach's date night had turned sour. The wood construction of the apartment was rapidly giving way to the incredible power of the winds and water. Rising floodwaters pushed against the lower floors while high winds pushed against the top floor. The first floor was already underwater. Anyone on the second floor was likely about to be killed by the third floor crumbling down on top of them. In the Gerlach's apartment, the window shattered and the front door flew open as water came rushing in. Fritz abandoned all hope. He didn't know how to swim. However, Mary Ann was determined to survive, so she allowed the waters to push her through a nearby window out of the apartment. As she was washed away by the rising tide, she could vaguely see Ben and the others through a third-story window. The water was coming for them. Back on the third floor, Ben couldn't see anything out of the windows, so he decided to walk down the hallway to the stairwell to see if he could spot anything. Leaving the apartment to get a view of the outdoors was not a smart survival decision. In a hurricane, winds send objects hurtling at astonishing speeds. Opening a door to the outdoors makes the individual vulnerable to such debris. Nevertheless, Ben reached the end of the hall and looked outside. At first, Ben couldn't see anything, but then he remembered he had a flashlight in his pocket. Pulling it out, he shined the light out into the darkness. The exterior stairwell, which normally ran down three stories to the courtyard, was completely submerged. Light from the flashlight reflected off the surface of the water. Ben's eyes went wide as he realized the flooding had already swallowed the first two floors and was coming for them next. 
Turning to run back to the apartment, he heard the loud pop of windows shattering across the third floor. Screams abounded. Inside of the apartment, everyone cowered as water came flooding in through the windows. Cracks began to run up the sides of the room and onto the ceiling, which began to crumble inward. The building shuddered, signaling the final collapse. Some chose not to attempt escape. Jack Matthews, the elderly husband of Zoe Matthews, simply wouldn't go any further. And in his defense, someone as frail as him didn't truly have any good options left at this point. To stay in the building was death, but to brave the floodwaters outside was also certain death. But as the water rose, the younger men made their own survival decisions. Ben and Navy CB Mike Gannon used their hands to knock loose a large section of the ceiling. Gannon then threw Mrs. Matthews onto his back and attempted to crawl through. Unfortunately, the small hole had created a vortex, actually increasing the power of the wind. And so the pair were ripped from the building and hurled into the air. Mrs. Matthews' frail arms were unable to hold on to Gannon, and she disappeared into the storm. If she screamed, the winds made it too loud to hear. Realizing Mrs. Matthews was a lost cause, Gannon saved himself by grabbing onto a tree branch. Everyone else in the apartment was forced out by the winds and the waves. Rick and Luann Keller tried to hold on to one another, but were pulled apart. Engineer Mike Beelan was washed away into the night as Ben was hurled through the air before landing with a splash into the water. Behind them, the Richelieu apartments crumbled into nothingness, fading into the waters like a sandcastle on the beach. All those left inside, including the building's owner, Merwin Jones, were killed in an instant. Ben twirled in the ocean water, not able to see anything not able to gain control of his limbs. His head briefly popped above the water. He gasped for air, only for a flash of lightning to reveal that he was careening toward a large tree trunk. With no ability to stop himself, he braced for impact as he smacked into the wood. It hurt, but he instinctively wrapped his arms and legs around the object. The water continued to rush past, but he was able to hold on. The rain-saturated winds of a hurricane make it impossible to breathe in the open air. Ben tried this, but found the oxygen sucked from his lungs as if a vacuum were placed over his mouth. His only recourse was to bury his face in the grooves of the tree, which he found functioned as air pockets. This would allow him to survive. He endured in this way, sucking air from the grooves in the tree, holding his breath when the waves crashed over his head and repeating the process. His limbs were locked in place, unable to let go even if he wanted to. Ben held this position for five hours. Around him, the ruins of civilization were washed inland. Shrimp boats that were previously the pride of the Gulf were lodged into buildings. Americana, such as large billboards and classic cars, were twisted beyond recognition. 
a bitter reminder of how even in its prime in the summer of 1969, the United States was no match for Mother Nature. Again, Pass Christiane was located on a peninsula jutting out into the bay. The storm rolled over it as if it wasn't even there. All that would remain were mounds of debris and the eerily smooth concrete slabs where buildings used to stand. A few, like Ben, clung to trees, power lines, whatever they could find, praying that they would be strong enough to hold on until the storm finally passed. Camille continued out of the bay and along the coastline. She shattered every community she touched, including Gulf Coast tourism meccas such as Gulfport and Biloxi. Each city experienced similar stories of tragedy and harrowing survival. But then, finally, she turned north toward Jackson, Mississippi. Though the inland regions were of course also damaged by the hurricane, they were less vulnerable by merit of not being on the coast. Floodwaters were less of an issue. And being that a hurricane is a heat-powered monster and ocean air is required to continue generating that heat, Camille finally began to die. Like some sort of beached sea creature, she crawled a few more miles. It was her turn to metaphorically gasp for air as she sputtered on toward Memphis before finally losing her hurricane status in the early morning hours of August 18th, 1969. It was over. But then something else happened, something horrible. Like spores released from an aggressive weed, Remnant thunderstorms broke off from the corpse of Camille and traveled hundreds of miles across the southeastern United States. They collided with a front of warm, moist air, creating a low-pressure weather system. Far below the clouds, the state of Virginia had been experiencing a dry spell. Its rivers were low, its hills were dusty. It was an environment that could not withstand heavy rainfall. The rain began the evening of Tuesday, August 19th. It would continue for eight hours, dousing the region with a level of precipitation previously unheard of, 27 inches in some places. This apocalyptic level of rain, coupled with the geography below, was a recipe for death. Dry riverbeds that ran through the middle of towns would overflow and carry even more water to other parts of the state. Dry mountainsides would become heavy with mud and send their contents toppling down into the river valleys that were already flooding. It would be nearly impossible to survive for those below. But most of the residents of Virginia, specifically those in Nelson County, were completely unaware of what was coming for them because, in large part, they were all asleep. For some, that sleep would be permanent. Next up, we follow 14-year-old Warren Rains as he and his family try to survive the Virginia floods of 1969. And now, back to the story. On the night of August 19, 1969, the community of Nelson County, Virginia, was fast asleep in their beds. They had heard news of the devastating hurricane far to the south, but they never imagined that it could pose a serious threat to them. 
If anything, the valley needed a little rain. Animal instinct jolted 14-year-old Warren Rains awake in his bunk bed. Everyone knows that a phone call in the night rarely portends good news. Had a relative died? Was there a fire somewhere? Was it just a prank call? Warren hopped from his bed to find his older brother Carl, 16, climbing down from the top bunk. They were both curious to see what had caused the landline to ring. Presumably, their father had picked up in his room. As Carl headed in that direction, Warren noticed the unusually heavy patter of rain against the bedroom window. Peeking out through the blinds, he was shocked to find their front yard had become a swimming pool. It was actually quite beautiful. A stream had formed in the road, reflecting the light from the street lamps. It looked like a river of gold. But Warren snapped out of his reverie. He turned from the blinds and walked out into the hallway. As he approached the open door of his parents' room, Warren's sense of dread and of adventure began to kick in. Entering, he found that his mother and father were bickering as his brother Carl watched on. It would seem that an elderly female acquaintance from the other side of town had been on the line. She was calling to warn the family that the whole county was underwater and that if they didn't flee, they would be washed away in the flood. Mr. Raines thought she was out of her mind, but Mrs. Raines thought they ought to call around some more and see what other people were experiencing. Carl thought this was a good idea, but Mr. Raines didn't want to bother anyone at this hour. It was then that Warren spoke up, pointing out that the front yard was already flooding. His father frowned at him and moved to look through his own bedroom window. A moment passed, and then he turned from it, clearly frightened by what he saw. Just then, the phone rang again. Everyone glared at it as if it were a rude child. But they also feared it, for they knew what was likely about to be confirmed. Nelson County was drowning. Mr. Raines picked up the phone with a barely steady hand, raising it to his ear. It was their neighbor from down the road. He and his wife didn't think they could make it out in the storm, but he wanted to know if the Raineses were planning on evacuating. If that was the case, then he would send his four children along to join them. Mr. Raines answered in the affirmative, and with that, everyone in the room realized that it was time to get ready to brave the storm. It wasn't long before the neighbor children arrived. There were four of them, Donna Faye, Gary, Michael, and Teresa. Warren's other siblings, Sandy, Ginger, and Johanna, came down from the bedrooms and began to put on their rain gear as well. It was a large group, 10 individuals, many of them young children. Survival amidst floodwaters was a risky proposition. With everyone all bundled up, it was now time to venture out into the storm. They all had to hope and pray that the water was still low enough for the family station wagon to safely pass. The decision of whether to leave the house or stay was an agonizing one. From a survival perspective, there is no absolutely correct choice in this situation. As with a lot of severe weather, the Raineses and the Woods were left with two non-ideal scenarios. 
to stay in the house meant retreating to the second floor and hoping that the floodwaters did not become strong enough to wash the entire house away. To go outside was to hope that the floodwaters stayed low long enough for driving or walking to safety. Ripping open the front door, the Rains family made their choice. They immediately struggled against the elements. The younger children had to hold hands with the older children or be carried by adults. Warren was left on his own. Stepping out onto the porch, he realized it was life-threatening to try to keep his face tilted upward. The rainfall was so great that the only way to breathe was with his chin tucked in. He had to watch for his family from the corners of his eyes. Warren was surprised by how quickly his father was able to pull around the station wagon. The family immediately piled inside. Everyone fit, but just barely. Warren and Carl had to ride in the trunk. Though the respite from the storm that the car provided was welcome, everyone inside could immediately sense that something was wrong. The car moved sluggishly, and the engine was making strange sounds. Outside, they could see the water coming halfway up the car doors. Then, the engine stalled. Up until this point, Warren had felt a certain sense of excitement about this whole thing. Awaking in the middle of the night to a mysterious phone call, rushing from the family home as the rain fell all around. It was like the beginning of an adventure book. But once they were in the car and on their way, he had thought that would be the end of it. If the car couldn't take them to safety, what would they do now? His fear began to overtake his sense of wonder. Mr. Raines decided they would walk. He didn't know it, but at that point, the better choice would have been to turn around and go back up to the second story of the house. The water had reached waist level in a matter of minutes. It would take a similar amount of time before it reached above their heads. But their course was set, and soon the family trudged along on foot, sloshing through the water and wincing at the painful rainfall. Warren was again left to fend for himself as the others held the young children. He didn't even see the wave that knocked him beneath the water. Like everything this evening, it happened abruptly, violently. Such rapid changes in circumstances made it hard to react, hard to accept the reality of what was happening. Before Warren went to bed, his life had been normal. It wasn't an action film where he was pushed underwater by terrible currents. He had spent the day biking around the dry riverbed, which struck him as ironic now. He'd sat on the counter while his mom cooked dinner, sat with his whole family while they watched news about the hurricane on TV, but didn't seem real, not like this. It's possible a thousand thoughts like this rattled through his head as his body swirled down the road. But he was finally able to catch his bearings, and impossibly, he emerged above the water. Not that there was much difference between being above or below the waves. With the stormy night sky and the lack of electricity, the world had become almost completely dark. By attacking at night, the storm was that much deadlier. The only way to survive was to feel around for something to grab onto. Constant lightning allowed for some visibility, 
though it was as if the world were lit by a strobe light. Warren's scrambling hands managed to find some sort of thin branch that he held on to for dear life. But it was very small, and even if his grip held, he worried that it would snap. All around him, the impossible was happening. The water must have been nine feet high, raging through an area that was now unrecognizable. Trees, cars, and whole houses floated by him. It was by pure luck that one of these objects didn't strike him. Somehow, across the roaring thunder, water, and wind, Warren could hear the sound of his mother. He turned, and a flash of lightning revealed her up the road, chest deep in water. She and a few of the children were trying to stay afloat. The thin branch was about to give way. Warren had no choice but to swim for his family. He cried out to his mother, catch me. His mother replied, let go, we'll catch you. At that point, Warren's survival was up to the fates. So he let go, swimming toward his mother. But no sooner had he started toward her than a flash of lightning revealed she was gone, along with the children. They had been washed away in an instant. Warren's fear and despair mixed into a potent cocktail. He was as an animal now, so overwhelmed by emotion that all that was left was instinct. But even that was not enough to save him. He could barely see. The water was frigid. He was sure he was going to die. But then he struck something. Something poked him in the rib, then the forehead. Then he stopped moving. The water was still rushing past, but his body had become lodged amidst the branches of a huge tree. He was safe from the rushing waters, but there was still the matter of breathing. The winds and rain poured down on top of him. All he could do to survive was hold tight to a thick branch and try to avoid the oncoming debris. His mind could think of little at that moment, but deep down he felt that likely his entire family had perished. If he was having this hard a time surviving, how could the young children or his mother withstand the flood? Over a day earlier and a thousand miles to the south, Ben Duckworth found himself in a near identical situation. He had been clinging to a tree branch for five hours as wind, rain, and debris pelted his body. In truth, he was barely conscious. His clothes had been ripped from his body. All that was left of him in that moment was the faint hope that he might live, that someone would come along when the rain stopped, if the rain stopped, and pull him down from this tree. The two young men, Ben Duckworth and Warren Rains, held a shared experience that they wouldn't wish on anyone else. Ben was certain that everyone else from the apartment was dead, and Warren was certain that the same was true of his family. They had no reason to be optimistic about others' survival. They weren't optimistic about their own. But there were others all around them, for despite the horrific conditions, many humans hung on, defiant in the face of tragedy. Their ultimate fate, however, remained in the balance.
Thanks again for tuning in to our Survival Summer of 69 special. We'll be back next week to discuss what becomes of Ben and Warren, as well as the others. We'll also follow the cleanup in both communities and see whether Mississippi has improved its survival techniques in the modern era. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the Summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, the Summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. Be sure to check it out on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Survival is written by Greg Castro and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson.